Hello, Blenders. It's Sean. And where is my intro music? Well, I needed to sort of disrupt the normal flow of an episode to explain something that happened this week. Um, We did a conversation in this week's episode, which you are about to listen to, about the coronavirus and the impact that it potentially could have on the film industry. And in that conversation, uh, Jake and Kevin and myself speculated pretty heavily on whether some of the tentpole blockbusters that are on the upcoming uh, release calendar would get pushed back. And we went into great detail about uh, Bond specifically, uh, No Time to Die, which was due out in April, because of its global uh, marketplace. And we were getting into uh, a really good conversation, I thought, about spoilers in particular, like if some areas are able to see Bond while others are not because of restrictions due to travel or groups being able to get out, uh, would the Bond franchise and the producers involved in it want to protect uh, the integrity of the movie and the story in general? Well, uh, after we recorded and before we were able to get the episode online, it turns out that MGM uh, and Universal and the Bond producers have decided to push No Time to Die back. Uh, it's going to be postponed from April to November of 2020. And that, uh, to me, is massive news because um, it almost feels like, and I think one of us says this in the conversation that you're still going to hear, once one studio does it, the dominoes tend to fall. And so I wouldn't be surprised now if we start to hear about some other films that shift their release date, specifically using the the reason that the Bond franchise has given, which uh, they actually say in their tweet, Uh, After careful consideration and thorough evaluation of the global theatrical marketplace, uh, the release of No Time to Die will be postponed. Well, now, of course, if you look ahead to films like Mulan and Black Widow, uh, potentially even Quiet Place, and getting into the summer blockbuster season, all of these films could use that as an excuse. And so it'll be very curious to see where this story goes uh, from here. So uh, I just wanted to hop on. Give a little explanation uh, to the fact that we want to still keep the conversation in in the show proper. Uh, It's, uh, you know, it's a portion of a larger conversation we were having about the coronavirus and its impact on the industry as a whole. And I just found it pretty fascinating that this news broke in between us recording the episode and uh, and us being able to get it up online. So um, that's our explanation. And uh, without further ado, let's get into the theme music and start this week's episode. Blenders, and welcome, welcome to episode number 108 of Real Blend, a podcast that thinks Sir Mix-a-Lot's Baby Got Back was a strange choice for the opening credits of The Way Back. I mean, it's a choice, but uh, I don't know if I would have gone with it. I'm just kidding. I haven't seen The Way Back, but I do love Sir Mix-a-Lot. I hope that he finds his way into the movie somehow. My name is Sean O'Connell, the managing director here at Cinema Blend, and we have a lot of stuff to get to this week, including uh, we're going to talk about The Way Back. As we mentioned, Ben Affleck's return to the big screen. Uh, We have an interview with the director, Gavin O'Connor. We are going to talk about Onward. Uh, in a this week's a movie, uh, this week in movie segment, and we have a very special tribute to somebody who was super important to us uh, as rising film journalists. Um, so let me get right to the introductions, because when I say us, I mean my good friends and co-hosts of the Roblin Podcast, Kev McCarthy of Fox Five in Washington D.C. Hi, Kev. Hi, Jonathan. How are you, sir? Jake, Jacob, how are you? And Gabe, I know you can't say anything, but hello, hello. And uh, joining us in the third chair as well too, the. Vice President of the Sir Mix-a-Lot Fan Club, uh, 
And the owner of a very nervous dog because of the window washers that are nearby, <laughs> Jake Hamilton of Fox 32 in Chicago. Hi, Jakey. My man, how are, are your arms okay? From Just because, what? like, because you, you were reaching oh, so much God. with that joke. Listen, that I, you that know I was struggling at the beginning of this show. I Come do. Good one. But what's funny is you were struggling <laughs> and then you got so excited at the joke yeah. you came up with. Right. And that was it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Shouldn't have been that excited. Yeah, I gave it a shot. Uh, anyway, plugs. I want to remind everybody, we have a community page uh, over on Facebook that you guys can join where uh, blenders are getting together and talking about all of the latest movie news. Uh, there's a ton of fun conversations between the Blender family. They're posting polls. Uh, they are asking for movie reviews and recommendations. They did a fun thing the other day that I think I saw Jake weigh in on about Top Spielberg. Where? Why was Top 10 Spielberg trending all over I don't know. I just saw everyone started doing it. And then I thought, hey, I have thoughts. <laughs> You're such a follower. <laughs> Why don't you lead? Do top 10 someone else. Well, because the last time. time I tried to lead on this podcast, I got a bunch of people reaching out saying that was weird. Don't do that. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. I, I want you to try that again. Just one more time. Never. I want Kevin to introduce Never. the show. That'd be a oh, lot of fun. Oh, they'll fucking love it when Kevin does it. We <laughs> are now posting our episodes on Cinema Blend's YouTube page. So if you'd like to uh, stream the show instead, head over there. And while you're there, be sure to check out my Westworld reaction videos uh they're posting on the daily and i'm start, about to start season two which i've been told is very very different from season one uh and of course we are available on all of your favorite podcast apps so if you are not already subscri subscribed subscribed please do so and tell a friend uh we crossed 1800 followers on twitter uh this past week which is a big accomplishment for us we're hanging on 96 uh itunes reviews and that's bothering me I kind of want to just get to the, the nice round number of 100. So if four people could submit fake reviews, I would love that, please. And uh, we may read them on the show. Uh, weekly poll. Let's get right to the weekly poll, because like I said, we have a lot of stuff to get to. Kevin, the poll question this week was, which March release are you most excited for, Blenders? And I gave three options. I want you to tell me which one that you think won the poll. Are you ready? I'm ready. Mulan, number one. A Quiet Place, number two. The Way Back, number three, or Other, was given as a choice. Uh, I mean, I would imagine Quiet Place, considering the success of the box office of the first one. I would assume with our, with, I, I'm going to go Quiet Place, part two. You are 100% correct. It dominated with 62% uh, of the polling. Now, I, I, I want to ask you guys this, because it feels like the marketing for that film has slowed down a tad. I feel like I saw a trailer early on, and now they're backing off a bit. Is it just because we have... A long time to go before it opens. A long time to go, meaning three weeks from now, because it's been heavy onward and Mulan is what I've been, been basically seeing. Yeah, but but I also feel like awareness is still pretty high. Like, you're right. I also, I mean, haven't seen. Then again, I also don't watch. This is going to sound super snotty. I don't watch television that has commercials. Like, I don't really watch network oh, TV, right? Mr. And, uh, and football is over. So, like, I'm not really, I don't, I'm not really watching anything that has commercials these days. So, I don't really know what's promoting. That being said, everyone knows this movie's coming out. Right. Um, you know, we've talked about, you know, gearing up to interview certain people from the film. And whenever I tell people about it, they're like, Oh, I can't wait to see it. So whether or not trailers are out there, it does it isn't stopping the awareness, which is what matters. It's also to the point too, like after that first trailer, I don't want to see anything else. Agreed. With regards Agreed to it. Cause it feels like it's a twisty sort of story that, that I wanted them to, to hold their surprises. So yeah. can I ask a question that I've, I've wanted to ask <laughs> since the, saw the first one and this isn't, I mean, I know this is going to sound like a joke, but it's really not. What if you pass gas 
uh, in the quiet place. Like, you get, does you get that, killed. You get killed. Does that alarm? Like, well, like can you, I, I saw an interview with Krasinski, um, <laughs> and and some, and they were like listing certain things that make noise. And right. the one that got me was that he basically said, uh, "There are no more dogs. Like, all the dogs have been killed because you can't oh. like stop a dog from." Uh, barking, <laughs> which was like a really heavy. So like That's dogs really and and Kevin, because Kevin would would bark <laughs> and then laugh. Scream bathroom blend, and then he would be killed. Well, that's the thing. It's like one of my favorite pastimes in life is hanging out with my friends, and like we all get goofy sometimes, and we'll you'll fart at some point. And I and I, I just wonder if you would all would be that, dead. I yes. Do you guys remember that scene <laughs> you, in the movie you where make it a uh, where John Krasinski and his son are walking through the forest, and they see the old man who is like like grieved, and and he's like gearing up and like getting ready to scream, and John Krasinski's trying to tell him no. I picture like I'm, I like I look at Kevin and Kevin like has a pun and he's like boiling up inside and I'm like shaking my head like telling him no and then Kevin just lets out this horrible pun and then I just start sprinting through the woods and then you hear the music go, dun, 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 and then bam it just gets Kevin. Yeah, but see, like, they could have called the movie A Quiet Place Fart 2. Like they, they could have easily done that. Oh, I don't know yeah. why they oh, didn't do God. that. How do I make this transition from, from that to our interview with Gavin O'Connor? Gavin, if you're listening to this show, I apologize. <laughs> Gavin O'Connor is a tremendous director who has worked on a number of outstanding films. Um, I, I hate to do this to a director. You know, sometimes when they make a, a film that's so outstanding uh, that you when you're introducing them, you automatically default to, to that film. Like I can't mention Gavin O'Connor without mentioning Warrior. Uh, maybe it's partly because I feel that that's still an underrated film, you know, even though I think more people are finding it over the years, but I'm always like Gavin O'Connor who directed this amazing movie warrior, but like the accountant did really well as, uh, too. I'm hearing good things about the way back. He's made some, some miracle. Uh, oh God. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, he has really good films on his resume, but to me, warrior is just so high up there that I always right. have to sort of lead with that. But, uh, Gavin O'Connor maybe that's also not a problem. Has- also has a fart joke in the way back. No, he doesn't. I, I'm he not does. kidding you at all. At some point, someone calls somebody Uncle Fart Poop. And I gave Gavin uh, credit for that. I said, thank you for including some type of potty humor in your movie. Do, See, you know, he, he gets it. He gets it. Brendan's nickname with his former principal. <laughs> this is going to be a long way around. Uh, Michelle taught at Brendan's school from kindergarten through fifth grade. Like he went to Michelle's school. And so he spent a lot of time after school because she drove him home. And one day he was hanging out in the classroom. It's probably like third grade. And he wrote on the whiteboard with what turned out to be permanent marker. And he didn't know it at the time. And he wrote fart McNuggets. For no reason whatsoever. And the I principal, love your son because he, he likes Shirley Temples <laughs> and he gets my humor. And she, the principal thought that was the funniest thing that she'd ever heard in her entire life. And it's become one of those stories that she tells to everyone that she knows because it's, it was written in permanent marker. Yeah, and that principal would totally be behind Bathroom Blend. Oh, 100%. totally it would be. Yeah. Yes. Well, anyway, so it, there's a fart joke in The Way Back, uh, the new movie that's coming out in theaters. <laughs> And we were able to speak to its director, Gavin. Right now, Gavin is listening to this podcast going, never again. I will never go on this podcast ever again. Far more important things, uh, including Ben Affleck uh, being his leading man once again. And the drama of uh, of putting together one of these come from behind basketball inspirational films. Uh, And so why don't we just uh, have us stop talking (laughs) for a little while and toss it to Gavin O'Connor, the director of The Way Back, uh, here on the exclusive Real Blend interview. 
right, guys, Kevin and I are super psyched. Yesterday, we were in New York and got to sit down with Gavin O'Connor to talk about the way back. And now we get to chat with him for Real Blend. Gavin, thank you so much for chatting with us again, man. Good to see you again. Uh, It's good to be with you guys. Thank you. Um, So I'm sure you probably actually already know this, but I thought it would be a cool way to start off the interview. Today is the 40th anniversary of the Miracle on Ice. And uh, whenever I saw that, I just I had to one, go back and watch all the original videos. And then I had to watch Kurt's halftime speech for Miracle. And uh, I'm just curious about, uh, you know, just just because I won. That's such an amazing speech. I'm curious about when you hear 40 years since that day. Uh, you know, you, you, you know, that, that moment better than most, what does that mean to you? Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I, uh, I woke up this morning to a lot of emails and texts, uh, reminding me of the, the anniversary. And I just remember what, what it evoked was, uh, when I was a boy and I remember, you know, being six inches away from the television screen, watching that game, not even realizing that it was taped. I thought it was live. I didn't know. And I'm watching the game and then, <laughs> yeah. and then obviously, you know, we won. And then it was just this, this joyous celebration in my house. And then I remember I grew up on Long Island and Huntington and out in the street in my neighborhood. It's a very blue collar working class neighborhood. There were people with pots and pans and it was like, it was like, um, you know, it was like New Year's Eve. So that, that, that came up for me. And then, um, and then I, re- and then, the opportunity to tell the story. I remember going up to Disney. I had never made a studio movie. And then they talked to me about making the film. And I just, it was such an indelible part of my life. It was such a strong moment in my life. I really wanted to be able to tell the story. And then the other thing that brought up for me was it was sort of this became this Rashomon experience because as I started talking to all the players, they all had a different perspective on the same event. They all had a different perspective on the same moments. So that's cool. It was very liberating in a way when, you know, I'd ask them like what happened in Norway when Herb was skating them and they all had a different interpretation of that night. So for me, it was like Rashomon. It was liberating. My God, I took a little bit from what Jim Craig said and a little bit from what Jack O'Callaghan said. And then I just started to combine it all. And, 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 and then lastly, the thing that popped in my head was I remember calling up Herb Brooks and I asked him, I said, Herb, you know, in my research and in the script, uh, you, you, you took three months to pick the team. I go, did you really, you know, why three months? Like, it just seems like a long time. And he goes, well, I had my team pick going in, but you know, with the IOC and the AAU and all, you know, all these different Olympic committees, he said it was very political. He said, I was so grateful to have the job and I really wanted to coach this team that I had to kind of play the game, the political game. He said, he goes, but I had, but I I said, but did you know your team going in? He goes, yeah. He goes, I literally had my team written down on a piece of paper. And three months later, it's, that's the team I chose. I just had to go through kind of like the political gymnastics to play the game. And I said, okay, I go, here's what I'd like to do. Cause I'm rewriting the script. I'd like to have you pick the team in a day. And I go, that to me is the spirit of the story, because if you said you didn't know your team, I couldn't do that. But since you did know your team, if I have you pick the team in a day, what would that do to everybody in the Olympic committee? He goes, oh, that would piss everybody off. I'm like, exactly. Let's piss everybody off. Let's go out and navigate your ruffling feathers, because that's who you are. And let's have you. And I go, I know we're going to remythologize the people. But I go, that's the spirit. And that, that's movie making. He was like, I love it. I would have picked the team in a day. He goes, oh, so I cool. said, do I have your blessing? He goes, you have my blessing. 
And that's, and that's, and that's what we did. It was a lot of that stuff where I would call the guys and call Herb Brooks and, you know, get their permission for things or ask, I asked them a lot of questions. And then, and then lastly, the last, the last thing I'll say about is, 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 um, well, two things. And then, but I remember, I think it was in August when he, I remember getting a call from, I became close with Jack O'Callaghan. He was the one guy I really liked Jack a lot. I remember Jack called me and said, I got bad news. Herb just died. So that was, I just started cutting the movie. And so that, so Herb was in me because I really liked Herb so much. So he was in me in the whole process. And obviously we dedicated the movie to him. And lastly, I would just say this. When we got to, um, when I cut, the, when I cut all the hockey, the, the actual, uh, the Olympic games, I needed to have Al Michaels come in. And now do all the voiceover, do the announcing. <clears throat> and oh, cool. so, you know, I'm making stuff. So it's not exactly what happened in, in real life because it's a movie. So things are cut differently and different things happen. And though I, I, I replicated very specific plays, other things I didn't. And, um, and I could see Al was so, when Al came in, he was, you know, he didn't know what was going on, but I started to show him some things and he was like, Oh wow, this looks real. And this looks all good. And then we started to do it, but we got to the, we got to the moment. Which says, do you believe in miracles? Yes. And, um, <laughs> and he said to me, he goes, ah, I can't do that again. And I go, no, of course. I go, how? It's impossible. It was in the moment. You were, you were experiencing this, 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 the most emotional, you know, joyous occasion. It was like, you know, fucking Beethoven moment here. So how could you? So, but the problem <laughs> was everything was, you know, on tape back then. So his, do you believe in miracles? Yes was so dirty. Everyone, my editor, everyone on the sound team, everyone at the studio kept saying to me that we can't use the original track. Do you believe in miracles? Yes, because it doesn't sound good. So Herbert, so uh, so Al and I tried to do it and tried, and he would do it, and it, it, it was horrible because how could you replicate that? And I'll never forget. We got on the, I got on the mixing stage, and you know, it's my first studio movie. I have Mike Minkler who, you know, does all, you know, Tarantino's movies. He's one of the great sound mixers. He's saying to me, yeah. I, Mike Minkler saying to me, you got to redo this. You can't do it. And, uh, in any event, I was a young filmmaker and I was just like, I'm not, we're, you guys be great at your jobs, figure out how to filter this thing and make it sound great. And I ended up keeping the real, the real, the real call in the movie. That's the real thing. Oh, oh and, wow. um, and I'm very grateful that I, you know, wet behind the ears, never made it, but I was like, I'm, I dug in. And I remember at the premiere, Al came over, he hugged me, he goes, thank you. Thank you for not using the bad, you know, for keeping the original. Hmm. So all the, that's, all wow. that stuff came up. Great I mean, it was just, some, just so many things, but yeah, it's a pretty amazing day. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. We all love Miracle and we've all cried watching Miracles. So that was actually really interesting insight. Um, you know, uh, Jake talks about that, you know, uh, Kurt Russell's speech. And what I was I found interesting about The Way Back is that you went R rating on this, an R rated film. And when the trailers hit, I, I didn't actually expect the film to be R rated. I was like, OK, normally like a sport, an inspirational sports film. I feel like delves more into the PG-13, PG realm, but you're dealing with high school kids here. And this is how high school kids talk. This is how the character uh, that Ben plays talks. Was it a struggle to get the R rating? Was the R rating part of the mindset initially? And I guess I was going to add this onto it. If you could see an R rated version of maybe like the miracle speeches or the uh, something in Warrior, <laughs> how fun would that be? But I guess maybe the path to the R rating with Way Back, was it hard to get that, the reasoning for it? And then could you imagine some of your other films having an R rated version? <clears throat> well, in regard to the Way Back, um, I mean, there was language in the script that Brad had written 
And I, you know, I, I, I will admit that I ran with that. Um, what happened was when, when, when Ben and I decided to make the movie and we took it to uh, Toby Emmerich at Warner Brothers, he was running the studio and he runs the studio. And we just said, you know, we know you guys don't make these kind of movies. Um, but you know, something we really want to make. And, you know, would you, would you, would you finance a film for us? And he read the script that weekend and then, and said he, he said, you know, he ran numbers, whoever, you know, whoever runs numbers at the studio, they do all that stuff. And he said, if you can do it for this number, um, you can go make the movie and I'll see you at the premiere. And that's what he did. We figured out how to make it. And then I never got a note. There was never a question about rating. He just said, like, just go make the movie. And he literally goes, I'll see you at the premiere. And that's what it was. So I just wanted it to be honest and authentic. And that's who Jack was. There was language and that just felt real to me. And the kids use language that felt real to me. And, you know, we got an R rating because yeah. it's not like we have sex. There's not violence. There's no blood. It's all language. So yeah. it could have been easy, but it just, it just didn't smell authentic. So, you know, we, you know, maybe it'll affect us at the box office, but we weren't thinking that way. We were just trying to honor the, you know, just the authenticity of the character and the story. Yeah, but you got Joker making a billion dollars. You know, I mean, I, I think R rating, R rated films are doing really well now if the content is there uh, in this story specifically. But, uh, but yeah, could you imagine any of your uh, miracle speeches in, <laughs> with an R rating? Like, with, could, could I, I, I don't think so. I mean, I, you know, I don't know about Miracle and Warrior. I would say that uh, you know, I, the, I had a mandate at Warrior at Lionsgate. They said you have to get a PG thirteen rating, and I was like, because I really thought it was going to be an R, and um. And I'm like, how the fuck am I going to do that with all this fighting, you know? And sorry, can I, I just dropped an F on it. Yeah, no, you're good. Yeah, am I right? We have an R-rated yeah. podcast. Oh, yeah, all, you're all good. right. Yeah. Great, 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 <laughs> yeah. great, great, great. But anyway, so then I remember I watched uh, all the Bourne movies, which were PG-13, and I was watching all the fighting. Going, okay, so it's really just about blood. It's not about the intensity of the fighting. It's really just about blood. So I was okay there. And then I knew I got one F-bomb. You get one F-bomb in a PG-13. So that became like a fun game yep. for my friend Anthony and I, who I wrote the movie. Like, Where do we do the <laughs> F-bomb? And we ended up giving it to Tommy um, in the casino scene with uh, with Nick when he drops the F-bomb there. But yeah, so I'm, I'm sure I'm sure I could have made that with R very easily, but I, I, my, I was handcuffed. Does Edgerton <laughs> fight you on that and go, come on, Gavin, I want it. Uh, I don't remember. No, Joel, no, he didn't fight me on that. He was cool about that. You know, Gavin, we, we spoke pretty extensively yesterday about... Um, what sports movies do right. And the big thing is a lot of them is that you don't make it about the sport. You make it about a metaphor for life. And, and, and the best sports movies do that. But I kind of want to flip that a little bit. Did you ever look in, at, at sports movies, specifically ones that aren't good? And, and, and are there attributes that some sports movies, like things they do wrong, that you looked at them and went, okay, certain movies do that. And it's not good. So I need to make sure to avoid that. Uh, you know, I didn't watch any sports. I, you know, I'm just at the point in my life. I just, I, I, you know, any free time I have, I hang out with my wife and kids. So I didn't like, I just wasn't watching movies. Mm. I just wasn't. I mean, I played sports all my life. I, I'm very comfortable in, you know, dealing with that subject matter. I've been in a lot of locker rooms. I've had a lot of coaches. So the one thing I think we talked, I can't remember if we talked about this yesterday, but I did, you know, I did have aspirations of shooting the basketball in this really unique way, something no one's ever seen, but like, trying to like break the chains of how, and I realized very quickly that was not going to happen. Like, uh, it, it, there's a way to, you know, you have to, you, the audience needs to feel balanced. They need to understand the geography. 
They need to understand where everybody are, is. You know, think there are things that, and I, I wanted to create a kineticism and what it feels like subjectively to what a, what a game would feel like. But I, I kind of just started to discover that is a tra- kind of a traditional way to shoot it that keeps the audience not confused, which was important to me. And um, you know, what you know, like I think we talked about yesterday. I never thought I was making a basketball movie, so I just never really thought about the basketball part of it that much, like how to. Or like watching sports films. I just, I didn't do it. So, so in that sense, do you approach it to you as, as a like, okay, I'm going to make a drama that features basketball, <laughs> yeah. not I'm going to make a basketball movie that features some drama. A hundred percent. You know, basketball, it could have been any sport. You know, basketball is just a vehicle to dramatize the journey of this man. You know, the whole point of the basketball for me was that he just gets the parent again. He lost a child. And, you know, when you're a high school basketball coach, you're a parent. So he got the parent again. He got to be a dad in a way, with boys. He lost a boy. So that, to me, was really important. And there were things that I was discovering as I was making the movie. I remember coming to work one day. I shouldn't say work. I tried not to play. I, I like to go to call play. But I remember going to the gym one day, and we were shooting um, some of the some of the practice stuff. And I said, to, I said to Ben, I'm like, dude, we have this kid, Kenny, who's spreading the love with all the girls. And, um, you know, and he, and I go, there needs to be consequences for that. He, he, you know, this is a teachable moment for a dad to, for, to teach his son to live in integrity. This is not how you treat women. So, you know, Ben was like, well, what do you think we should do? And I said, I think that he should run, he should run, he should make this kid do wind sprints. And, and Ben said, how (laughs) many, you've never done a wind sprint, man, you know. You know, that turns into a punishment real fast. Suicides. Yeah. Suicides. Exactly. That's what we call them in school. Exactly. And then Ben said, well, how many suicides? And I go, well, Jack doesn't decide that. And he goes, what do you mean? And I go, the three girls that he's been (laughs) misleading will reveal them on the sidelines and they get to decide how many wind sprints this kid does. And so there were things like that, which were not in the script that we were discovering along the way that were, um, you know, once again, parenting moments that were important to both yeah. of us. You know, Gavin, something I discussed with you yesterday in the interview, I really, I wanted to rebring back up here. Cause I think it's, there's some, there's something I wanted to talk to you about it. Uh, another question, another angle on it, because you said something so powerful yesterday about filming that scene with Ben Affleck's character and his wife in the film. Uh, you had a quote in, a, in an, a, an earlier interview where you said during that moment when Ben's breaking down, you said that I, I think that was him, meaning that that was Affleck's pain on the screen ver- and, and not only just Jack the character. Um, you said something yesterday when I asked you that question about there were takes that were so that yeah. were so honest that you were you didn't want to include them because they were almost too personal. So could you elaborate on, again, what you meant by saying, I think that was Ben in that scene, but also the restraint of not to include things that maybe put him too much in that scene? Yeah, well, that was another scene that we, there was a discovery as we got deeper into the shoot and deeper into the story that it seemed like uh, Jack needed to make amends to his wife. Um, and, uh, so when we, you know, put the stage, the scene and put it up and you know, after conversations and I did say to Ben, I said, look, I'm just going to roll and, um, we're going to do the scene. And then when I feel like it's over, I'm going to just go, we're going to keep rolling, go back to one and we'll do it again. So you just get cooking. And I said, let's try to uh, calibrate different emotional, uh, temperatures and levels to the scene and we'll see what happens. Cause I don't know, you know, I, I, I try not to go, it's gotta be this one way. Like, let's just explore it and see what happens. And then 
if we just keep exploring it honestly. <clears throat> and there was one particular take where, I mean, it was like the, 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 the dam just broke. I mean, the dam fucking broke. It was like Niagara Falls. It was crazy. It was, it was so hard to watch. I remember when it was over, I didn't say, I didn't say anything. We just, it was just pin drop silence in the room. The crew, everyone was just like, they couldn't believe what they just witnessed because it was so, it was just heart wrenching because, you know, it was, it was real because I, I, I just was watching going, he probably had that amends conversation in real life. Yeah. And, and maybe some of the things he wanted to say, he didn't say that he got to say today. And it just became this, um, but it's the interesting thing about acting is, you know, as painful as it is and as what looks like suffering is, is actually cathartic. And if you're doing your job right as an actor, it actually feels good because when you tap into something really honest, that's your job as an actor is to evoke yeah. honest emotions. Uh, um, and, and even if it's imaginary circumstances, although these really weren't that imaginary, but your job is as painful as it was, it was hard to watch. And it was really heart wrenching. It was also in a way so fucking beautiful. And so, um, uh, just, you know, brave and courageous, but just, just deeply in a penetrating way, like so honest. And, um, I watched it go, that's going to be in the movie. But when I actually, when I built the scene, it was, it was too much. I actually didn't think an audience would be, I worried that an audience would almost get, it was like, this is too deep. This is too personal. Yeah. So I, I found a take that, that I thought was, it got him on the brink of the, it was in the right, he was always in the right emote. He was always, it was all there and the, you know, brimming. But I chose one that was a little less than because I just thought it may be too much for an audience to, you may pull them out of the movie. Wow. That's crazy restraint. Cause if I mean, I'm imagining how emotional that was. Wow. That was such a great scene. You know, I'm curious, whenever you got signed onto this movie, you, you had to know obviously that there was going to be that personal element to it um, because of everything that Ben has gone through. And I genuinely kind of felt bad for you guys yesterday because I know all of you had to endure a lot more. Um, I don't want to say like borderline, like intrusive personal questions uh, on a junket than you would normally ever have to endure. Um, ben and I spoke yesterday about how this movie giving people the opportunity to ask questions that they would never get to ask. Yeah. Was there a part of you as a director that kind of just ever thought I didn't sign up for like, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't sign up to have to deal with, for lack of a better phrase, like the TMZ element of enduring. Cause I mean, Ben being the biggest, one of the biggest stars on the planet, you're having to endure a lot more personal questions than I think you, I'd imagine you've ever had, had to in your career. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, 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 that presented itself when, uh, when Ben was in rehab, which was right when we started prepping the movie, he went to rehab and I didn't know if the movie was going to come to an end because we just started prepping. And then he, I couldn't reach him for a couple of days, which was weird that he wasn't. And I knew something was up and then we all saw what happened. So after he detoxed, I went up to speak to him to decide, are we going to make this movie together? And how do we now, how do we go on this journey together when you're in here for, uh, you know, 30, 60, whatever, the, however many days it was at this point that he had left. <clears throat> and, um, and he, he, you know, when he went to rehab, which I did, which I, he, he actually went in with a basketball under his arm. When he went to rehab, he took a ball with him because we had just started, cause he still wanted to make the movie. And he said, he goes, oh, I wow. really, I really want to do this, Gavin. Like we got to figure this out. So I worked it out with his agent and Toby at the studio where, 
you know, we were going to be okay and let us, you know, and then Ben was getting furloughs out of rehab with a sober buddy and we would meet at his house or at a gym. But what I discovered was when like we would go to his house cause he, uh, we would meet there and, and work. There was paparazzi everywhere. Yeah. And I was like, Oh my God, like they're, they, they're aware of this little movie we're making and, 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 and this is going to, it just became very clear to me, like the subject matter we're dealing with now that he's in rehab and he's going to get out just as we start to shoot. Obviously, this is going to become a thing that we have to we have to deal with. And that's when it hit me when I saw it, like it was just so it was just like so much paparazzi outside his house. I was trying to get through all these people just to go work. And that's when it really hit me that this is something. And then we're just prepared for it. And uh, it's not a big deal for me. I mean, it's 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 Ben's life. So he, he's the one who has to, you know, uncover more and reveal more about himself. And, you know, fortunately he's, you know, he's, he's okay talking about it. And, you know, it all, if he was in rehab right now, it'd probably be a problem. Yeah. You know, but he's doing great. And, um, he seemed great yesterday. He looked great, great. yesterday. It was, it, he's doing great. it seemed like he's in a really good place. He's doing great. He's really doing great. Yep. I'm very interested in the way your camera worked uh, in this film. Uh, it was very documentary style, uh, so much so that there were these great moments where we would be close up on Ben's face and I could even see the camera slightly zooming during a moment. Uh, and it was very like we were capturing somebody's real situation on uh, on film. So I wanted to ask you about the choice to shoot it that way. The idea of almost letting the audience know the camera's there a little bit because you are zooming within a very close up shot. And then the idea of you shooting it digitally and it still almost looked 16 or 35, like it looked raw, very dirty, so much so that even like Ben's hands, the, the dirt under his nails, the, the whole film just felt kind of not dirty, but like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, a, yeah. like, 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 yeah. like grainy. Yeah. Um, and like, as we were kind of experiencing it. So can you talk about that, those choices? I think they were very interesting choices for the character. Well, I initially was going to shoot the movie on super 16. I'd never shot digitally before. I've only shot on film. I was going to shoot it super 16. Uh, you know, there were some panic at the studio about shooting at super 16. I was like, that's, you know, I want this movie to feel intimate. I want it to feel immediate. I want it to feel subjective. I want the audience to feel like, and because it's a character study, I just want the audience to feel like they're in a way times a fly on the wall, just, you know, being privy and witnessing this guy's personal you know, private moments. And, um, so that's the road we were going down myself and my cinematographer, Ed Du. I do grow and the studio was just slightly resistant and we kind of had these conversations and pricing things out. And then, and then they informed me about uh, a company called live grain, which is a, um, uh, a company that, um, they, it's, it's an amazing thing. So if you shoot digitally, usually with digital films, you can put grain, you could make it, you could put grain on, but it's just like, it's just like, it's like the, it's like a layer on the, like what, almost like a layer on the lens. It looks like, it looks like a layer on the screen, but there's no dimensionality to the, to the, so it just feels like almost like, like snow or something just on top of the frame. And what live grain does is they replicate, they'll take any, um, film stock. They have film stocks from, you know, from 80 years ago and they can replicate and, th and dimensionalize the, the, the grain and you can actually, wow. add, it's, it's an unbelievable thing that is a new, it's Your a new film look like film. It, it looks did. like film. I know. So <laughs> yeah, once I, once I, I found live grain and then I started doing all these tests with live grain and how dense we can make the grain. And cause I wanted it to feel like a seventies movie. 
And, um, yeah. and it was astounding. It was an astounding, um, uh, discovery, the technology today that you can do this and, um, and make it look like really make it look like film, not like that kind of superficial grain on top thing, but what film has, which is three dimensional, it's just dimensionalized grain. So that was, um, you know, so once I did that, then I started shooting digitally, which was great because in digital, I can shoot for 20 minutes. I can do a take for 20 minutes because I like to just keep rolling. You never know, you know, you, you, the mag, you're not running out of film. So that was liberating too. Uh, a testament mm. to how good it looks. Kevin and I sat next to each other at the screening and the second that Ben popped up on the screen and, and he's on the construction site, Kevin leaned over. I don't know, Kevin, I don't know if you remember and goes, it looks like this was yeah. 35. I know we're, we're uh, running short on time, so I think each of us are going to ask one last question. Sure, I want to bring up sure. something that, that was casually dropped in the interview yesterday and something that you just sort of touched on. Uh, in the scene where Kenny has to run suicides yeah. because he uh, was kind of messing around on a couple of different girls and, and, and the girls are the ones that get to get to, to, to send out the punishment. Your daughter is one of yeah. the three girls. Yeah. And I'm curious as to how that, uh, th- did you go over to her and say, hey, I kind of like, it'd be fun if you did this. Was she asking to be in, in the movie? And because that's, that's an interesting role to have your daughter do. Uh, it's very interesting. Um, so yeah, my, my daughter has been at, you know, she's a, you know, she's a little theater nerd. She does all the school plays. She's been asking me for years to be in one something. I've never, ever cast her in anything. And then, um, you know, she's like, dad, can I just give you, let me do something, please. Let me be in it somewhere, anything. And, um, and there were, you know, there were high school girls. So it, there wasn't a lot of options. It was a couple it was one of these three girls. And, um, so I had her, you know, she did it and she did a great job. She was fun. It was fun. And, and then I remember I said to, I said to, um, uh, uh Will who plays Kenny, I'm like, look, you can't kiss her. There's no kissing. <laughs> But then when I was doing it, I, I remember shooting, I was shooting the scene and I'm like, if it wasn't my daughter, I would have him kiss her because that's what the character would do. And I just was like, stop being a fucking protective dad. And I didn't tell my daughter, but I said to Will, I said, just, you know, don't get, cra- <laughs> don't get crazy, but give her a kiss because that's what the character would do. And he did. And she was like, oh, you know, and, but it, that's what's in the movie. And. And then I remember she improv like a line to him when he was leaving. She's like, good luck in the game or something, which she improv, which I, I laughed. I thought that was funny and cute and smart. It was a good improv. And, um, it was fun. It was a great day with her. We had a blast. She was so, so, so much, so, so many props for, for the kid that played uh, for Will for, for playing Kenny. Cause that's, that's a no win situation for him, man. <laughs> True. Yeah, but he did great. You know, he he's yeah. he's that kid. I love that kid. He's wonderful. So I, I can ask this question in a non-spoilery way. Um, okay. And if it gets too spoilery, we can we can um, we can cut it. But the last shot of your film is in the trailer. Uh, and so I just thought that maybe I, I kind of wanted to ask you about that shot particularly, because it's a shot that you pull wide this gorgeous beat uh, of water and the basketball court right there. Ben is taking shots, uh, a couple of them at a time. One of them misses at one point. Do you do that once? Like, does he say, I want to make them all? Is that, that's really him the whole time. Can you just talk about that idea, that shot? Well, when I found that, when I found that, uh, that basketball court on that location, I just was like, you know, it just felt like liberating and is the first time we watched him pick up a basketball. And I just thought it was really cinematic and, and very California. So yeah. I, I really like that. Um, 
you know, so the trick, you know, like I, I could make any basket, any ball go in the basket at any point with visual effects these days. So it didn't matter. Yeah, I it like that he missed one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that he did miss one, uh, but there were there were more that he missed <laughs> um, <laughs> in different takes and some he made. So, you know, there was uh, um, but I wanted, the, you know, the, the missing. So, you know, even if he missed two, I made sure one went in. Then there was the miss, which was intentional. I didn't want him. Mm. Or Ben said, every, you know, do what everyone go. I'm like, you know, everyone go in. You have the guy. I don't care how good you are. Michael Jordan, if he hasn't picked up a basketball <laughs> in 17 years or whatever, 20, you can miss. It doesn't make you bad because you miss a shot. So I just wanted it to feel real. And I don't know. That's what, that's what happened there. I don't know why, like, as I was watching it, I just felt that that miss was actually a really important thing. I don't. Yeah. I, I thought it, it, it hit it hit me bigger than I thought. It, I think it would. It's just well, a cool. missing of a shot, but it was well, like cool. it gave it, it almost humanized them. Exactly, it humanized them. Yeah, yeah. It would have been so, so easy like to. It would have been so easy to have them. By the way, in real life, going out there because I, you know, I play bat. Like with the wind, it's not that easy to make those shots, no matter how good you are. The wind is really strong coming off the ocean. You got to like, you got to overcompensate. So uh, it wasn't that easy. So there was a couple that I visual effect to go in to make it look smooth. Yeah. All right. Well, looked all. I, def- I know we have, I know we have to let you go, but uh, as Jake was saying, we were in the screening kind of talking about 35 millimeter. I also want to thank you for uncle fart, po- uh, uncle fart poop. I appreciate that one as well. I, I, I enjoy, I enjoy that kind of humor. So I that uh, a, a theater full that. of adults and you just heard Kevin go, ah, that's funny. Well, Kevin, uh, so that I, I, I would say that was in the script. Brad Inglesby likes the fart poop stuff. That was important to him. Make sure I make sure I honored, I honored Brad for that. And I have That's to say awesome. one thing, Brad, by the way, guys, I have to say one thing because we're talking about Ben and my, it, we're all, we all signed up because of a script that Brad Inglesby wrote. He's a wildly talented writer. He wrote an incredible piece of material and then became a partner to Ben and I because, you know, once again, as a filmmaker, you want to make it personal. So he was really great about allowing, allowing me to kind of bend it in different directions and try different things. And then there were times I'd call him and say, can we rewrite the scene? I wanted to go in this direction with it. And he'd be like, yeah, sure. And he'd write it better than I could have written it. And cause it's his story, you know, it's his script. So he was an amazing collaborator and partner on that. I, I want to make sure we honor that because it, you know, he, you know, he, we are all, we all, this all started because of Brad and, um, and he's a good friend and he's a great writer and um, and I'm just you know I'm just grateful that I got to be, become friends with him and, and be able to in, interpret his script in a way that I know he's happy with too. Gavin, well, he, we I know we have to let you go, but I just thought of something, and I, and yeah. I don't want to get you in trouble. I know I want my okay. to get mad at me, but the, I I had this question in my mind while I watched the film, and I was just looking at my notes that I took while watching your movie, and I was like, I have to ask you this. You you have scenes in the film, and I'll keep this quick, where Ben's character is drinking, clearly drinking. Um, and I was curious, what, was that still weird to shoot stuff like that? I know it's not really alcohol in the movie. I know that you use whatever you use, fake, what I don't know what they use for fake beer or fake uh, liquor. But um, it, was it still weird to shoot stuff like that, to have him even act like doing yeah. that? Yeah, it was weird because, the, you know, the first week... I designed it where the first week we were just in his house doing all that, a lot of the drinking stuff by himself. Um, and, uh, you know, the scene with the the case of beer that goes down to, so yeah, it was weird cause he just got out of rehab and now we're, it's sensitive because I didn't know if he was going to have triggers and sense memory of what it's really like, even though it's not really drinking what it really, you know, that the, you know, the, the beer can in your hand and the, the taste of alcohol, even if it's not really alcohol, but you're at, so yeah, I, I was, I was, that was delicate stuff. 
it was delicate stuff. Yeah. I was fascinated by that. Well, thank you so much, Gavin, for joining us. I'll let, Gabe, uh, let uh, Jake uh, close this out, but we appreciate you coming on. All right, Kevin, thank you very much, brother. Yeah, I, I think, you know, uh, sometimes I think I speak on behalf of Kevin uh, and, and myself. It's tough to come up with just enough questions for one junket interview. And I think between the junket interview and, and today that you made a movie that, uh, you know, I, we probably still have a thousand more questions we could ask you. So thank you for making such a powerful film. And thanks for uh, for spending so much time chatting with us. Well, you, I appreciate it, Jake. And lastly, I just want to say to you guys, like, this is appreciated because as you guys know, probably as better, as good as anyone, these kind of movies don't get made very much anymore. You know, capes and tights. That's what everybody wants is superhero movies. So we really need, you know, we need the love, man, because I don't know, but like I go to the, any of these small movies, I just, I just go, I give them my money because we need these movies in our industry. If these movies don't succeed, our business is going to, it's already changing, but it'll, it'll change in a way that I don't think is good for our industry. So, you know, I, I very, I just from my heart, I'm very, very appreciative to you guys for even just, you know, taking the time to, you know, give us or the movie some love and just shine a light on it because, you know, we need it. So I thank you guys for that. Oh, dude, this, this, this podcast is all about movies like this. Cool, man. Long, Long Island has to stick together. Our other co-host is from Long Island. My whole family's from Long Island. Oh, cool, man. Uh, Port I heard of Long Island. Then, so, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, well, I'll be listening. I'll be, I'll be listening to the podcast. So I'll be, uh, I'll be saluting you guys then. So thank you very awesome. much. Thanks, Gavin. Appreciate Thanks, it. Good Gav. to talk to you. Bye, Bye Jake. Soon. Bye, Kev. Bye. Bye. So believe it or not, we do have the capacity to have serious conversations about serious films. You, you wouldn't know it from the preceding conversation to that interview, but we do have the ability to get serious for a second. And uh, and thank you to Gavin for uh, for coming onto the podcast. And thank you for Warner Brothers for helping facilitate that. Um, Kevin and I were with him the day before we uh, did the interview in a gymnasium, like a high school gymnasium, which was really cool. Um, so, uh, it was really, it was, a, I thought it was a really, uh, a really oh, great conversation. I want to tell you guys something cool about that gymnasium. That is the same place where Fox last year did the kid who would be King, right? Oh, really? Yeah. Same exact location. And this will blow your mind. Maybe it won't, but it blew my mind <laughs> at the time. My father went to that high school. No. Yes, he did. Uh, years. I mean, obviously years and years and years ago that that's the neighborhood that my parents are from. And my father went to that school for two years before they threw him out, before they kicked him they out. They threw him out? Yeah, they kicked him out uh, for, you know, attendance issues and just being a, a general teenage badass. But um, and he ended up going to a different school where he met my mom. And then. Uh, wow. Yeah. But they're all from that that small neighborhood. And so it was really weird to go to that junket for the kid who would be king with Brendan because Fox invited Brendan to come and do the interviews for that thing and then walk those hallways and it's and it's a really old school for people who don't you know who've never seen it. What's it called? Xavier? Is that what it is? I forget the name of it? Saint, isn't it Saint Xavier or something? Saint like that? Xavier. Saint Xavier. Yeah, it's an old school. I think Todd Phillips built it like, years ago. Yeah. <laughs> and so to be there with my son and to think like my father walked these halls uh, years and years ago before they kicked him out was bizarre, bizarre, very strange. So anyway, crazy. But, it has nothing to do with neither here nor there, uh, but go support The Way Back. We're going to get to a full-on review, uh, no spoilers, uh, in, later on in the show when we do This Week in Movies. Um, we're going to get to news really fast, and we were initially going to talk about uh, Spielberg potentially leaving Indiana Jones Part 5, but we shuttled that when we realized that we lost James Lipton. Uh, James Lipton, who is the host of Inside the Actors Studio, and Jake, it's funny, Jake was talking about this before the show, more people might recognize him from the Will Ferrell uh, impersonation that Ferrell did on Saturday Night Live. And I'd almost forgotten that he did that. Jake, did he do it often? 
Uh, he did it often enough uh, on the like the best of Will Ferrell um, DVD, which I had back, you know, when we had DVDs. Uh, yeah, yeah. That sketch was on there, and the reason I bring that up is because a lot of times, especially outside of Chicago, uh, people m- might not realize that like Harry Carey was an actual Cubs announcer. And not just, and whenever people ask, like, okay, wait, who is Harry Carey? I go, you know, the Will Ferrell SNL character. Like, hi, everybody. Yeah. Like, same thing with James Lipton. He gave him, like, he had that, this high stack of questions. And he would, in this very almost borderline pretentious British accent, which is funny because James Lipton didn't have a British accent, which he called no. him out for one time. He would ask <laughs> these very long, superfluous, and make these big, bold, grand statements like, E.T. is perhaps the greatest film ever made by man. <laughs> Buy it. Or rent it like this very like dramatic <laughs> borderline Shakespearean. Um, but James Lipton, I saw an interview with him and, and Will Ferrell one time, and he had a really good sense of humor. But it, but he just kept bringing out like, why didn't you give me a British accent? I don't have a British accent. But I always love that. So he's definitely somebody that we all look to uh, when we were learning how to ask questions. Uh, now Lipton had a different setup, right? Like the people came to the school specifically in order to come for these long, longer form interviews. Uh, they often would go deep into biographical questions and then they would go, essentially it's a dream scenario. You walk through their entire career and you're getting some of the best of the best, but they loved it because they got to do it in front of students at the, what's the school. I forget the name of the school. It, it just, is it the actor studio? I, I thought it had a yeah. name to it. Yeah. I thought it had a name to it, but maybe not, but they were really talking about craft and Kevin, you want to talk about, too. Like you consider him and Howard Stern to be your two influences in terms of getting into interviews? Yeah, I mean, well, Lipton Lipton was probably first because I used to sit, I, I, used, I had a sales job. I, I did the job that I'm doing now with the movie reviewing aspect for free for about eight years while I worked a sales job on the side and I used the sales job to take vacation days and use the evenings of that to do the movie thing that I really wanted to do. That was my passion. Um, and so I would sit at work a lot and I would watch a lot of inside of the actor's studio because I was so fascinated at the deep dive that Lipton got to take with these actors. And it actually gave me a much deeper appreciation for acting in general. Uh, I, I just the idea of what Lipton was able to pull from these actors, where they went emotionally, uh, their lives, uh, how their family life created who they became as an actor Um and then one of the episodes I think everyone's talking about that that just hit, struck me was the Bradley Cooper episode, um, which I think is honestly one of the coolest things I've ever seen on video, where you have Bradley Cooper as a student at the, I think it was Pace University was the name of the school, if I remember off the top of my head. I remember him saying Pace University. Um, but Bradley Cooper stands up to ask a question to De Niro. De Niro was the guest that day. Cooper is not famous. Cooper is a student. De Niro is there as a legendary actor. And Bradley Cooper gets up and asks this brilliant question about the way De Niro wiped his eyebrow in Awakenings. And he wanted to know if it was a correction or something he added to the character. And I was blown away by the depth of the question. (laughs) And then De Niro goes, that's a good question. And then and then years later, they're making Limitless, Silver Linings Playbook, Joy, uh, all these movies together, and it's truly amazing to think about that. And then Bradley Cooper's producing Joker and De Niro's in Joker. I mean, you think about who that kid was, uh, and just that show in general was just so beautiful. He would make these actors break down emotionally and find the places they had to go to as actors. Their actors were crying on that show. They were almost like in therapy sessions with James Lipton uh, because he was able to open them up like that. And the preparation, remember Lipton's cards? Yeah. He had yeah. those like stacks of blue cards and yeah. like, you know, while we only do four minute interviews, I still write stacks of notes 
um, because of that. Like he he really is one of the biggest inspirations on my career next to Howard Stern. See, I mean, people joke because Stern came from a very vulgar background of radio, but his interviews that he's doing now are just incredible hour and a half long deep dive interview, interviews with music artists and filmmakers and actors and directors they had Tarantino, Tarantino on at one point Harry Styles was just on the other day I love Harry Styles listening to him talk was pretty cool um, so I, I just found those two interviewers to be a big influence on me Lipton specifically because I've seen every episode of Inside the Actor Studio multiple times uh, I love every interview people ask me a lot they're like oh is your dream job like, like, what is your dream? Is your dream job like to work for E, like a national like E or, or Access Hollywood Entertainment Tonight, something like that? And I always go, no, my dream job is inside the actor studio. Like, I, I, I don't, yeah. I, could, I could care less about working for, for. I mean, sorry if you're an E employee and you're listening, but like, I couldn't care honestly. Like, I couldn't care less about working for for Access Hollywood or E. Like, that's not. If we're talking actual dream job. Yeah, like having an hour with one of the greatest actors of all time, where I can start at the beginning. Like that's well, that's the and dream. I'm. And I'm not I'm not trying to put us on any kind of a level, you know, but I almost feel like when we get our longer form opportunities 100%. on this show, yep. the people who are listening to this show on the regular probably understand now when we're talking about James Lipton and the influence they had on us. Like, there's a reason that we come up with the questions that we come up with, the three of us, uh, is because these are the types of things that we would ask if given a longer form. And we just don't get that in the junket situation, right? right. You have to rush through four minutes. You've got to try to get a soundbite or get it, get one... Like, that's one of the reasons why I um, was jealous, legitimately jealous of what James Lipton got, because he was given so much time. Now, again, you're you're seeing that episode, but it's cut down from a day of interview of, of the interview. It usually goes much longer than what you've sh- shown on the show. But he's also getting the people who are showing up prepared to go into that uh, background, you know, whereas when we get them, a lot of times they are. The 100% the opposite. They're yeah. guarded against questions like that. And so right. um, he, it's a completely different setup. And he benefited tremendously from that, you know, and, and brought the right questions to that type of, of type of scenario. But in regards to what you're saying, one of the beauties of a longer form is that you loosen up the yeah. the interviewee. And like they're like when you're in four, like people don't realize. And again, this is not a complaint about our jobs. But when you have four minutes on television with a Joaquin Phoenix to break down Joker, there's really no time to create a connection and try and get a interview that's going to be out of a soundbite. That's kind of what we all strive to do. I believe all three of us do and try to do is try to take them out of that four minute like setting and try and get something personal and something connected with the interview. And to be able to have this long form, like when we got Quentin Tarantino for 20 minutes, this is prior to us getting him for two and a half hours, but the 20 minutes, <laughs> that's a thing, <laughs> but get, getting Quentin Tarantino for 20 minutes was one of the happiest things I have ever been able to do in my life yeah. was to actually sit there with him for more than four minutes and talk movies and actually be able to relax and not think about what my next question was going to be. I could sit there and listen to his answers. And that's why it's something that Lipton did really well is that he, since he had that longer form, he was able to actually relax in the conversation and just talk to the person. Because generally, most of the time, and Jake, I'm sure, can chime in on this as well. I still do this, and I did it a lot when I first started out. You're not really listening to the answers, because you're so worried about the timer to your left and then the next question you have to get to. If you have four minutes with a room and there's two big actors in it, you might get two questions and that's it. And you have to get to certain things. And so 
the idea of having a loose idea like that, being able to talk in long form is just incredible, which is why I love doing this podcast. I started off in radio and all, it's all I ever did was these long form interviews. So Lipton was the key. He was the guy that I looked at and went, you know what? I love how deep he takes these actors and I, I want to do something like that. You know what I, I mean? I got to share a funny story with you guys too. Uh, PJ hung out with some friends on Friday and uh, he texted me and said, uh, we want to watch a horror movie. Can you make some recommendations? And I've shared this on the podcast. The, my boys aren't into movies the way that I am. Like that's dad's thing. And so when he does show an interest in a movie, like I get super excited. So I made a bunch of recommendations. Then he got back to me and he was like, uh, oh, we're going to watch Joker. I was like, all right, right. That, that's a good fit, right? That that should work out. And I said, uh, you know, afterwards, you guys can listen to uh, our Real Blend podcast uh, with Joaquin Phoenix talking about the Joker. And he goes, yeah, that's exactly what we want to do. <laughs> we want to sit around did. in a circle and listen to Sean O'Connell talking to Joaquin Phoenix on Real Blend. And I just love that Sounds he just cool ego checks me like that every chance that he gets. Yeah. Uh, so as we continue the just to talk about Lipton really fast, what we thought would be a fun activity uh, is for people who don't know, he would end his interviews with these uh, standard set of questions, uh, these 10 questions he would ask the people. Now, again, they had time to prepare. Uh, they probably came up with clever answers long before they got there. I liked it early, early on when he got people and sort of caught them off guard with it. As they got later into the inside the actor studios, the actors who came to show up were sort of ready for it. Um, so. I, I, we sent the, the questions around to each other. I, how would you want to do this? Like we each, each pick a question and ask it to one of the other people on the show. How should we, we're not going to go through all 10, but Jake, why don't you pick one to get us started and, uh, and just ask it so that we can give you our answer to it. You do it in your best James Lipton voice too. I, I, don't, I can't because my James, James Lipton's voice in my mind is Will Ferrell's yeah. voice. So I can't do it. Um, I really, ooh, only because I feel like, I swear on this show way more than you guys do because you give right. me reason to, and you guys are good people. I'm going to ask you, what is your favorite curse word? Which was his seventh question. Hmm. You ask. Uh, I have a very specific curse word. Obviously I love fuck more than anything. I'll use fuck in like places where it just doesn't belong. But my favorite one is horseshit. But I say it the way Ben Affleck says it in Chasing Amy. I'm like, ah, that's horseshit, and drag it out as long as I can. It's so funny. I feel like I feel like the word fuck really does actually give weight to anything you put it next to. I, I, I'm a big heavy metal fan. I was listening to uh, the radio on the way home, and one of the one of the uh, lead singers of the band just added the f word in the middle of a sentence, and just made him sound like that much cooler. I don't know why that word just like, if you put that word before something else, it just, it gives it a serious tone, like a more like a weighted tone to it. And I just think it's just a powerful word in that regard. And I've always found it to be interesting because as I get older, that word still, when you hear it, it still sounds like a curse word. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not a normal word. It still sounds like a curse word, even though we say it all the time, but I would go with that. All right. I'm going to ask, uh, what profession other than your own, would you two like to attempt? I want to be a high school journalism teacher. Uh, and, and my plan at whenever I'm done with this is to end up being a high school journalism teacher. Um, I just Why love high the, school? Because I feel like that's when you can still impact when, a, like whether or not, a, like what direction a kid's going in in life. By the time you get them in college, if you get a, a kid in a, in a journalism class in college, it means they've already made a conscious decision to 
go into journalism or communications or something of that degree. Yeah, High yeah, school, yeah. you could bring about an idea, turn on a light bulb that may have otherwise not been turned on. And the reason I like the, the idea of being a high school journalism teacher is, is none of my teachers really like were journalists ever. Um, and I had a lot of great teachers, but I didn't really have any of them that like began lessons with, well, when I was out in the field. And I just picture this idea of like, if I'm a, a high school freshman, kind of interested in journalism, enough so that I took a class and I walk into a classroom and I see pictures of my teacher with some of like pop culture or history's like most iconic people and pictures of him like holding awards and all kind of stuff. I'm, I'm going to sit down and go, I should probably listen to this guy. Now, I'm not mm-hmm. saying like it's going to say it's going to make me go be a journalist, but it at least adds some legitimacy. And I love the idea of having every single one of my lessons tying to a real life experience that I've had, because by that, by the time that I, I will be ready to do that and actually leave TV and go off and do that. I'd like to think that I will have a lifetime worth of lessons to, uh, to teach kids. I want to, I want to be Mr. Feeney. That is a great answer. Good Lord. Kevin, good luck following that up. <laughs> yeah. I don't have anything to follow that with except for, I'd rather, I, I, I wanted to be a lawyer growing up. Um, and Would you still I mean, want to be a lawyer? Well, I didn't want to be a lawyer because it had, it involved too much reading. And I, I really, I just don't love to read. I, I, I really don't. I love watching movies and and, and he's just, still I'm, never actually seen Parasite. I, I'm such an ADD uh, reader that I have a hard time. I know movies are different. Like when I'm watching uh, subtitled films, I'm all in. I can read every aspect of it. But if there's something about reading, I just get too distracted from it. Um, so I was worried about doing, doing all that reading in college for being a lawyer. Um, but that was probably what I would, would have, would have done. Um, I'd love to be a therapist, uh, or also maybe teach film. I'm learning so much about you guys. Kevin, you get to ask us a question now. Um, oh, I want to know what Jake's favorite curse word is before I, before I move on to my oh, question. Uh, goddamn. Just yeah. cause I, cause I feel like it's so applicable in so That's many different one. kind of scenarios. And I feel like it best, like when I say it, I feel like it, it most comes from like inside me. Like, like there, like there's a goddamn tree right there. You know, like I feel like it really, it's, it's, it's the most me when I say it, it, it seems like it's, it's, it's the most natural to say for me. That's awesome. I love it. Yeah. I always like the, the heaven exists question personally. I think we should um, all, I think we should all answer that. I'll all right, let's all, right. all so, answer that one, and then we'll move on to the next. So, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? And this was a question he would ask. And Jake, I, I heard you earlier because I watched the same clip because Dave Chappelle was on his show, and Dave Chappelle actually asked James Lipton that exact question. And and what did he say? He said like, Jim, I know you're. Uh, I know you don't think I was real. What does he say, Jake? What's his answer? Yeah, he said, uh, uh, Jim, you're wrong. I am real, but it's okay. You can come in anyway. Right, all right. That, and it's a great answer. Um, my uh, mine would be I, I would want God to say Dunkirk. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. I like that. Jiggy, can I have two? Sure. Two. First one would be I liked the Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> <laughs> and then the second one, probably the more serious, more serious one, would probably be like, "Hey, all your dogs are here. They've been waiting for you." Ah, oh, that's sweet. Mine would probably be um, food isn't fattening up here. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we all just got a little insight into who we are. (laughs) Into all we we truly, truly are. The the, the crazy thing, we're going to get up there and it's going to be Gabe and he's just going to be wrapping us up. (laughs) No, 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 no. no. There is no wrap. 
Your life is wrapped. <laughs> Your life is wrapped. All right, let's get to a more serious topic as well, too. Not, not, you know, not that the passing of James Lipton is not serious, but we have to sort of get into the spread of the coronavirus um, and specifically how it could affect our uh, industry, specifically, because we're we're on the cusp of uh, some major things happening potentially uh, that might affect what we um, do and cover and and the the types of films that we're able to talk about in the coming weeks. Now, nothing major has happened yet. It's been a lot of sort of talk and speculation, uh, but we wanted to sort of weigh in on the spread of this virus and how it's affecting different people, because right now it's a big travel thing, um, but we're starting to hear uh, rumors and innuendo about big blockbusters potentially being shifted back and even just um, how releases of major movies like Mulan and No Time to Die might be affected if they're not able to open in larger markets like China, where a lot of these uh, people uh, r- r- uh, wait to see those uh, receipts come back and really help a film's box office take. Um, do you guys think we're now at a point where these studios are um, rightfully concerned or is it still too early in the game for uh, the coronavirus to be something that drastically affects our industry? I think there are absolutely meetings being had right now. Like I guarantee you that every studio that has a major movie coming out within the next two months had a boardroom meeting today. Um, The the one that I'm most eyeballing is Bond. And Mm. I feel like that's the one because I sort of feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, and I can't emphasize enough how much this conversation is speculative. Like none of us know anything. We're not saying one way or another that anything's going to happen. Um, but I just can't help but feel like it, these. I, I can I can almost, short of being in the room, guarantee that at least these conversations are happening. Um, I have I, a question along yeah. these lines as well, too. Do you think that a movie should push its release date back based on something like this? Because I don't know. Like, I'm not quite sure what it benefits um, by pushing it back. Okay, but but here's here's yeah. the argument though is that. It wouldn't really like it, it not being pushed back wouldn't right. affect us. There are groups of people who have put together letters specifically right. asking for bond to be pushed back because they live in countries in which gatherings of large people are being prohibited right now. Like Italy. Didn't like that Italy. In Italy? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so they're saying, look, like, Something like Bond specifically, and I know I keep going back to that, is meant to be a global event. It's meant to be we all get it together at the same time. Okay. And, you know, look, and they're basically saying we're not going to be able to get it by, you know, if if you stick to your current release date. So Mm -hmm. let's just make it fair for everybody and push it back to the summer. Okay, so I feel like sense, it's yeah, then. I feel like it's easy for us to say, hey, it's not a big deal. Just just, you know, whatever, like, the, the, you know, the, you know, other people will get it later. Let us get it now. But for people that that are very much excited about it and aren't getting it, it is a big deal. So it's not even just it's not a strictly financial thing. It's not strictly the studio receipts. It's the cultural impact of a story potentially being seen by some people, especially. And, and we do keep going back to Bond because that's one that feels like it's going to be majorly impacted by this. Um that it's Daniel Craig's final one. There's probably going to be plot details that you would want to protect. Right. And if you're in an area of the world where you're not able to see it because of some type of uh, restrictions due to the coronavirus, then yeah, I can see that that having a drastic effect on the film industry. Though, to be fair, I feel like if a decision is made, it will be made 
based on finances. Oh, yeah. I, I feel like if it is pushed back, it's not because a group of people out of the kindness of their hearts wanted to protect fans from spoilers. It's because they realized that financially it made the, the, the most fiscal sense. Kev, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, my personal thoughts on this uh, are that the film business is now more international than it is domestic. Yeah. Um, there are movies being made specifically because they did well in China uh, or other countries. Uh, for example, you look at films like Triple X, the second movie. I remember that movie coming out. I bring that up randomly because it crushed in China, but it didn't necessarily do well in the United States. And I bring that up because I feel like movies are being made production wise now to play to international audiences more than they ever have before. That's again, my own speculation. I just truly believe that, um, international box office is King. Uh, if you look at any movies, major box office receipts, Avengers Endgame, for example, uh, I don't remember the exact number off the top of my head, but I think it made 2.7 billion worldwide. I believe 1.8 billion of that was international box office. Yeah. Um, so if you are bond and you are relying on international markets for your film to do well, box office wise, for example, take a look at Skyfall. Skyfall made $1.1 billion worldwide at the box office. Roughly over 300 of that was domestic. The rest of it was all international. Mm -hmm. So the point I want to make about that is if you're going to release a film like Bond in the United States, the I think the reason you would push it back is if you are afraid of what's going to happen to it within other countries like China, like Italy, wherever the film is being released. Those are gigantic box office receipt areas. If you put the movie out in America and not put it out in China or other big countries and the film gets pirated, that's going to hurt the box office. Now, I understand piracy is a is a thing we're dealing with all the time. It is fascinating to me that Bond is opening up in England on April 2nd before it hits the U.S. on the 10th. So that could totally negate that entire argument. But if you do not release your film in a major market like China, you have to you have to realize that that's going to definitely affect your box office for sure. So if you're a studio and you are un, under the impression that it might actually hurt your box office, why not push it back to the summer? That's and also the countries that would be affected right now, the countries that are, are most affected by the coronavirus, those particular countries made up 38 percent of Massive. Spectre's box office. So yep. and, and that's just the countries that are affected right now, not to say that things could not get worse or better um, as time progresses. Um, but right now, if if uh, a No Time to Die were to open today, it would not be getting the countries that made up for nearly two fifths of the previous right. film's box office. And that's a pretty damn big chunk. Yeah. And you have to think about that from a perspective of like Mulan then becomes a very interesting discussion. Mulan being the idea of it being an Asian centered storyline and how do you not open your film and give it to Asian audiences? And so, for example, that movie opens up in, what, three weeks? Is it Was it March 26th, I believe, is the release date on that? Someone double-check that. Um, but I do believe it is that date. So if you're Disney and you may not be able to put your movie in front of certain audiences, including China, what do you do? And that, that that's a very interesting thing because that movie is specifically – a foreign type of film, a film that's going to do well with foreign audiences, international audiences. So if you put the movie out in the United States and people in China want to watch that film, what are they going to do? They're well, probably going to download it. You're looking you know ahead I mean? to uh, you're looking ahead to two major 
uh, Vin Diesel pictures in Bloodshot. And then if, if it keeps going into May, Fast 9 is is a global franchise. You know, I mean, it has so a huge Bond. American audience. Yeah, Bond is as well, too. Black Widow is going to be is going to be huge, too. Um, it's something that we're definitely tracking. And unfortunately, we just don't have enough data to see. Now, one of the things that I'm looking at, too, personally, is two conventions um, in South by Southwest and CinemaCon that uh, South by Southwest obviously takes place in Austin. Uh, CinemaCon takes place in Las Vegas. Las Vegas is, you know, it, it, it's held in Las Vegas, but you would almost never even know that there was a convention going on there because there's so many people there anyway. <laughs> and these are the types of places that that feel like they're going to be uh, drastically affected by something if it continues to spread. So I'm curious if those festivals, uh, those industry type things will keep going uh, in the state that they're going to be in. Interesting uh, perspective, by the way, I mentioned triple X two at the beginning of my um, argument. And the reason I brought that up is because there was a huge article that came out um, back when I remember triple X came out explaining why films are being made for international audiences over domestic audiences. Triple X two box office. 13% was domestic, 87% was international, $301 million international box office for that film. So what, in my opinion, is happening is studios are understanding that certain films, like a Vin Diesel, does really well in this market or this international country. Bloodshot, I feel like, is a film that they're hoping does really well internationally. I don't think it's going to have a gigantic domestic box office. It's probably going to do very well internationally. So that beca- that that's where this question comes in. Do you risk taking your film away from your international audience and releasing it in the U.S. with piracy becoming a massive problem for that situation? Or do you just push it all the way to summer and blanket release it? Well, that, that's where the question is. And I, I definitely want to point out, too, as we wrap up this conversation, like we're taking it from a, a film and business perspective. Right, like right. there's there's a huge human element to this coronavirus, obviously, too. And we're we're deeply concerned about all the people who are being affected by the virus as well, too. This is a movie podcast. You know, we're going to be looking ahead to these titles. We're going to be looking at this material how it potentially affects because we're fascinated with the decisions that get made behind the scenes by studios because you guys keep saying, you know, push it back to the summer, but there's so much strategy in terms of release dates and open weekends and open screens. Yeah. Especially like bond has an IMAX uh, uh, partnership. Yep. And if you, if you move bond to the summer, then you're dealing with tenant coming out, which probably has an IMAX that, that that's an interesting aspect to it. And to Sean's point, I think it just goes without saying that the human element here is the most important part of this story. Absolutely. But that being said, we are a movie podcast, like he said, so we that's the angle we're taking, but we are completely in understanding that the human part of it is outweighs completely the importance of the movie part. But there was an article today that I sent you guys, was it $5 billion? Is that what they were saying? The movie that the movie industry will lose possibly within the middle of the coronavirus yeah. uh idea. So that's why we're talking about it. It, it. it is going to affect a lot more on the financial side as well, which is a very big, devastating thing as well. The human side being the most important, clearly. Well, and if there's one guarantee about any movie that will be uh, affected by the coronavirus, it's New Mutants. Because they're going to figure out some way to delay that movie yet again. They'll push it back well, at least another year. If it exists. Dude, all right, let me ask you guys this. As we sit here right now, before we move on, uh, as we sit here right now, does Bond get moved? No, I don't think so. I think they hold. I, I think they hold steadfast because, and and maybe I am naive, but while the numbers are high, 
uh, in terms of the people who are being affected by the coronavirus. I don't think that they are uh, like that is a huge move financially from for a studio to make. And I, I think for all the reasons that we just discussed, it's more beneficial from a creative uh, financial logistic, like all the different headaches that they would have to jump through to push a film back. I think it's easier for them to keep it and then deal with the repercussions of some people didn't get to see it, you know, in their area, but larger amounts of people did get, did get to see it. I think you're starting to look at May, things like Black Widow, things like Fast 9. If this continues to grow um, as a, as an epidemic, as an epidemic, as something that people are dealing with, I think Bond is probably going to stay where it is. That's my guess. Put Mulan on Disney Plus. Let's move on. All right. This oh, week in this week in movies. Uh, anybody see The Banker? The Banker. Limited release. Apple TV. <laughs> the Banker. Uh, Sam Jackson and uh, Anthony Mackie. That's a real movie. I actually do know that movie exists. Um, all right. Here's one. <laughs> the Burnt. Orange Heresy. Burnt Orange Heresy? I did. Limited release? Nothing. Oh, wait. I got one. I got one. First Cow. <laughs> I've actually <laughs> seen people saying very kind things about that yeah. online. Well, I thought it was an odd follow-up for Damien Chazelle. Uh, but good on him for branching out. <laughs> Well, it's about it's about this is about the cow that jumped over the moon as opposed to first man was about the man, the guy that landed on the moon. Wait, I thought this was about the cow that gets spun up in the twister in, in Twister. I thought it was that story. I don't I'm not sure which story it is. I just know that the stakes are high. I was looking the jakes are high. I was looking forward to seeing it. If it was the, if it was the twister prequel. I, that's what I was hoping for. I, I wanted to know the life of that cow. Uh, Emma expands wider. Emma. Emma with a period. Nothing? Okay. Have either of you seen Onward? Did you guys see Onward? I saw Onward. Oh, good. Kevin, give us a spoiler-free review of Onward, because I have to go to it tonight, and I'm I'm going to be honest with you. I am not that in- excited. Uh, it's like one of the first Pixar films in a long time that I'm just not that enthused about going to see. It's, it's, it's interesting. Onward is a film that looks really good on paper. Um, okay. I think Tom Holland, Chris... Uh, Pratt, Pratt coming off Avengers Endgame, doing a film together about two brothers who go on a journey to try and spend one more day with their pa- father who passed away years before, uh, uh, well before Tom Holland met him, and then passed away briefly after you know knowing his his son Chris Pratt's character. But it is, it's a film that necessarily should probably make you cry. I mean, I feel like at, at the end of the day, that plot line, anybody who's lost a father, anybody who's wish they could spend more time with their father. I think that's going to probably hit people on a different level. My issue with the film is that those are universal themes. Um, I have not lost my father, thankfully. Uh, Knock on wood. But I've also watched a bunch of movies where characters do lose fathers, and I cry like a baby because I understand the emotions of what's going into that scene. The problem with Onward is it, it's it's so disjointed, in my opinion, and it's a little strange. It's almost like Weekend at Bernie's, but with, with Pixar. I don't know if uh, Gabe would agree with that, but it is. There's a strange element to the idea of the father coming back in half form. Um, and it was weird for me as an audience member, even though it's a Pixar movie, even though we're dealing with elves, uh, there, there's something it didn't connect with me. I was I found it to be odd. That the father had no upper half. Okay. Um, that that seemed strange to me. And I, and I know that's not really a criticism, but it took me out of the movie because it was just 
so weird within the context of the story, I thought. I want um, to ask you a question about it, but I almost don't want it answered. So I'm going to refrain uh, for my own benefit. Like, I okay. have a plot question that I want to know, but I, I don't want to know. So I'm going to save myself okay. by not asking. But I mean, the film itself is fine. And I know Gabe saw it and he liked it. I I, thought, I, I would say I liked the movie. I just didn't love it. There was no um, emotional punch for me. Um, every Pixar film... From Inside Out to Up. Okay, Up's a great example. Up deals with the beginning of a guy losing his wife, right? I have not lost my wife, thankfully, but I understood the emotion of what he was going through in that scene. So I could emotionally attach myself and understand what it would be like to lose your wife. I did not fully grasp the idea of the weight of what it would be like to lose your father at that age through this story. Okay. It just didn't compute to me. On the other end of it, there are some great moments. Holland and Pratt are great together. Visuals are fantastic. I just thought the film was just a little too weird for its own good. So if that makes sense. Cool. All right. Well, I'm going tonight. Uh, Jake, you ch- you're not going to check it out. Jake, you got something uh, going on? Uh, yeah, I got a thing. <laughs> you got a thing. Uh, but you did see The Way Back. So why don't you take us through The did Way Back? The Way Back. Um, yeah. I liked The Way Back. Okay. Uh, I thought Ben Affleck g- g- actually gives what might be the best performance of his career. Um, he's absolutely incredible. It's it's less of, and it's so interesting, um, there, there are two trailers with the movie. The first trailer, I think, is much more reflective of what the movie is than the second trailer. The second trailer makes it seem much more like this inspirational sports movie. It's more of a character study um, and uh, of a guy who uh, is struggling with his own personal demons um, and is is uses uses this vessel of, of being a, a high school basketball coach to kind of pull himself out of hell. Um, but it's more about the demons than it is uh, the basketball coach itself. Um, I I liked it. It never. If I'm using a metaphor and I like you know and 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 like you're in a house and when a movie really moves you, you like burst through your heart bursts through the ceiling. It's like onward. Like it didn't hit you. Right. I, I right? felt like yeah. I was tapping the ceiling. Like there were moments where I was like, I was hitting the ceiling and I kept feeling like, okay, like we're going to like any moment now we're going to burst through the ceiling and I'm going to feel what, what a buddy of mine calls capital P powerful. Mm -hmm. And I never, it never quite capitalized. It was lowercase powerful for me. It, 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 it's very like, I would absolutely recommend the film, but it never quite, I never burst through the ceiling the way that I thought um, that I was going to. And, and quite frankly, the way, the way that I wanted to. Okay. Yeah, and I, I think it's the exact same way I thought about Onward. Uh, both films, uh, while wildly different, deal with very heavy thematics that anybody can relate to, okay. no matter what you've been through in your life. And I com- that the way Jake explained the way back is the exact way I felt about the about Onward. I was I, I was I could see the horizon of the feels of the emotions that I wanted to get to, and the movie set everything up for me to get there. It just never helped me get there. Okay. And I think that's what Jake's saying about way back is I felt the same way. I thought performance wise, Affleck crushed it. Um, it is a little too real at times because it's one of those weird things where when an actor takes on a role like this, that becomes an issue sometimes with suspension of disbelief. And I say that because as you're watching it, it's hard not to think about Ben Affleck, yeah. which is the exact thing you should not be doing when you're watching a movie is thinking about the person playing the role. 
In this case, it's different because it's a therapeutic thing. I actually love that he did it. I think it probably really helped him to understand what he had gone through with his own situation. So I commend him for that. But there's something too close to this story that we all know from the news and the media and the TMZs of the world where that story is a little too real for us. We, we've seen Affleck go through these situations. We've seen video of Affleck in very sad situations like this. So it's hard for your brain not to go to that. That being said, I want to give Gavin O'Connor credit for in the interview you heard the live grain they added to this film looked like 35. It looked unbelievable. I was shocked at how good the cinematography was. They shot it digitally, but it had a super 16 look to it. They shot a documentary style. It was meant to be raw, like you were there, like you were capturing a moment with people that you weren't supposed to be seeing. Um, one thing that Gavin said in the interview, which I thought was interesting, was there's a scene in the film where Ben's character has an amends with his wife. And they didn't even use the best take or the quote unquote best take, which was mm. Ben genuinely breaking down in the moment. And to, according to Gavin, I don't want to take words out of his mouth to paraphrase him. I think he said that that was Ben in that moment, not the character. Mm. Um, and he probably got to say things to the character that he wishes he maybe could have said to his own to Jennifer Garner. Right. right. Um, and again, that's speculate speculative. But I, I do feel that the movie was a very raw thing. And that does come across in the film. So is it's hard. It's like, it's like at the end of all what I just said, after all two minutes of me babbling on about it, is the movie worth seeing? It's, it's not an easy question to answer. It's like, and I don't know how Jake feels about it. If someone said, should I go see The Way Back on Saturday night with my friends? It's like one of those things where like, it's good, but it's not great. You won't cry maybe, but you'll feel things. I mean, it, it, you know what I'm saying, Jake? It's one of those weird ones that finds that middle ground where you yeah, don't... Yeah, I would, I would tell people to I'd go see it. i recommend it. If people were yeah. saying, you know, like, I, I don't think, I don't think anyone um, w- would dislike the movie. Um, they wouldn't. By any stretch. But I, I, but I wanted to love it. I, wanna, I, I, I wanted to love it. I wanted to cry. I wanted to feel it more. And I think you did too. Yeah. And I think that that, that that comes down to, I think, the story just being a little disjointed. There's a couple times where I thought it was going to end and it didn't. So. I, I want to float a theory uh, to you guys and to the listeners um, about something that Kevin just said, which is that uh, a lot of times when you're watching this, you see it's a hard time to not see Ben Affleck. Yeah. Um, and you don't lose, you don't see the character that he's playing. And I brought this up to transition us into our blend game this week, which is uh, Ben Affleck blend. In looking over his filmography, I'm going to make an argument that Ben Affleck is not a great actor. Um, I think he's a good actor. Uh, but I don't. He's think a great he's, director. He's a great director so far. I mean, to your point, I, I don't know. Obviously, I don't know what our picks are, but I bet none of us picked our film, our Ben Affleck film, because of his performance in it. That is partially true of mine, but I I did not go through his filmography and be like, oh, that's his home run. You know? I, 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 okay, I'll tell you this. So my, and I'll, I'll tell you what it is when we get to our picks. My favorite movie that he's in. I did not pick because the movie is not good because of him. Like he yeah. is not the re- like he is in like like of all of his movies, I would say like that's the one that is my favorite. But I'm not picking it for a Ben Affleck blend because he didn't contribute to it being good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You I, know what I, I mean? well then I think I know what yeah. your choice is. But and I'm going to use an example somebody who who does this. Um, I'm going to say Adam Driver for this reason. Every time I go to an Adam Driver movie, I think like. He is such a um, distinct person that I'm never going to be able to believe him in such and such a role. And I always believe him in the role. 
He loses himself in the role every single time. Yep. Um, I don't think Ben does that all the time. I think I'm more often than not, I'm watching Ben Affleck in a movie and I'm like, well, Ben Affleck's going to try to drill a hole on this asteroid, you know, <laughs> but like <laughs> Adam driver just disappears into whatever role he's playing. And, and uh, you know, we know plenty of performers who are like this and it doesn't mean that Affleck's not a, a massive star, you know, like I think people make this comment about Tom Cruise a lot of times too. They'll be like, well, I'm just watching Tom Cruise in an action movie. Now I think that undervalues what he brings to, to certain performances as well too. But, uh, and looking at the filmography, that was kind of a, a assumption I came up with. And then when I floated to Jake, I was pleased to find out that uh, he kind of, yeah. kind of felt the same way. Yeah. Matt yeah. Damon is a better actor than Ben Affleck. Oh, Matt, I'd argue Matt Damon is a great actor. And I'll tell you, the movie that shows that is Dogma. When the two of them are in scenes together, so Damon good. is running circles around Affleck. And Affleck's good in that Do movie. Do you think, okay, so we're about to get a movie with Adam Driver, Matt Damon, and Ben Affleck. Yeah. Do you think it's that's going to exemplify oh, yeah. Affleck's acting skills? <laughs> I'm afraid it might. Yes. See, I, I, I think might. Affleck is on a different level because of the films he's directed. Like, it's an interesting thing for me because there's the acting of Ben Affleck, which I've, yeah. I, I've always enjoyed his films. Uh, I love Armageddon. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of his work. But when he directed Gone Baby Gone and mm. didn't put himself in it, um, I was like, that guy is insanely talented. Um, and I, I agree with you. I don't, I, I wouldn't necessarily say he's a great actor, mm. um, but he's a very good one. But I think him being a director puts him above someone like a Damon, in my well, opinion. Why don't you start, Kevin? Tell us who your pick is. Well, my, I feel like my pick is just obvious, right? Because I feel like I always talk about this scene. Um, but my, my pick is Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Okay. Um, well, so... It's, it's funny because, like, Affleck, w w the first time I ever interviewed Ben Affleck, um, and th I guess th this is the reason we do this this, this blend game, right? Because it all comes from our personal uh, stories. 100%. So I first, when I first started off um, as a journalist uh, in 2005, I was on a radio show. I had no connections. I had no television station. I had no camera crew. And then Ben Affleck and Casey Affleck decide to come through D.C. to Georgetown to premiere Gone Baby Gone. And there's a video of this, and it's, it's horrifying to look back on it. But um, I'm wearing it's like delightful. this like, terrible, like green collared shirt. Um, I'm holding a microphone that doesn't actually work. So keep in mind, there's a camera that's so I had a friend of mine come out to stand behind me and film with like a cheap camera that was connected to a microphone that wasn't actually picking up any audio and i don't remember if i knew that or i'd use the mic to make it look professional i can't remember it was one or the other <laughs> i love that so Affleck, i really up. hope it's the second one i'm sure it was that i probably used it to look professional <laughs> meanwhile keep in mind everyone to the right and left of me is like abc and nbc they have like these gigantic camera crews lighting and so there's just me like, uh, with, you know, with my microphone and my friend holding the camera. So he walks up and you guys have seen it. So you guys already know the story, but he walks up and the first thing out of my mouth is, hey, man, it's Shannon from the Fashionable Mail, which is his mall rats character. And meanwhile, this guy is trying to set himself as a serious director in Hollywood. <laughs> He's directing Gone Baby Gone, which is a very serious subject matter. And then he has this punk kid talking about Kevin Smith movies. That's like, then, like getting Clint Eastwood for Unforgiven and being like, didn't you didn't you do a movie with a monkey one time? <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so Affleck, I feel like 
I think Affleck was taken off guard because he'd probably done so much press for the film already that he was just ready to talk about the movie and go into the serious tone. He starts dying laughing. He starts asking me questions about, like, are you a big Kevin Smith fan? I'm like, oh, yeah, let's let's, let's do this, man. I was like, Clerks 2, that scene in Jane Silent Bob Strike Back when you talk about essing in someone's cereal. And he starts, like, dying laughing. So that was my first encounter with Affleck. Um, and genuinely, my first encounter with Affleck ever was Mallrats because in... The year Mallrats came out, Silverchair, one of my favorite bands of all time at that time, had a, had a song on that, on that movie soundtrack. And that's how I found Mallrats, was because of Silverchair, which then led me to Kevin Smith, which then led me to Ben Affleck. And then I go down the rabbit hole, right? So then I start, then I watch everything Kevin puts out. Dogma, Chasing Amy, uh, Mallrats. Then you get to Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. And this is where it becomes my favorite Affleck thing he's ever done. Affleck and Matt Damon as everyone knows, do a scene in that movie about Goodwill hunting to hunting season. And they do the exact same scene with the same cast and same people as they did the original Goodwill hunting in that bar. And Jay and Silent Bob are in the background. It's a really funny shot where you see them getting moved out and then pushed back into the same shot. And Affleck and Damon are parodying their, their own characters that they wrote for Goodwill hunting. Even Gus Van Sant is in this scene over to the right, counting his money. I don't know how, how Kevin pulled this off. <laughs> but there's a moment in that scene where, where, so Affleck's talking to the guy with the long hair. He's giving him the speech. Damon turns around. What did I say? You'd be back in here regurgitating Gordon Wood. And I'm just staring at Affleck the whole time. He has frosted tips um, on his hair. And when he puts his arm around Damon and then looks down, he goes, I don't like the sound of them apples, Will. What are you going to do? But he starts to crack like laugh in that moment. And that was to me, my favorite thing about Affleck is because he was able to make fun of himself. And that's what we saw in Jay and Silent Bob reboot when he did that scene and, and listed off Argo jokes, Bruce Wayne, Thomas Wayne jokes, Martha jokes. And I always just found that funny because I feel like Kevin was able to pull things out of Affleck that no other filmmaker could. He, I feel like that's really kind of, Affleck likes to have fun, in my opinion. That's what I gather from their relationship. And you got to think about all the stuff they did together. Chasing Amy was a legitimately brilliant performance uh, in that car when he tells Joey Lauren Adams he loves her. So to me, it was everything he did with Kevin I really, truly loved. And specifically, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, he not only plays himself or the parody of himself in Good Bull Hunting 2 Hunting Season, he also has that very famous scene where he explains the internet and does the Phantoms joke and has all those moments where are they're just classic Affleck. When I think of Ben Affleck, that's the first thing I think about is Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, Clerks 2, Chasing Amy. So that, to me, will always be the Ben Affleck I grew up with. And I go strike back because to me, it's my favorite thing he's ever done. I think uh, that was beautiful, Kevin, by the way. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, walk down memory lane. Affleck gets another terrific curse. Thanks to Kevin Smith. So he does horse shit in Chasing Amy. Ah, it's <laughs> horse shit. But when he gets called out on the 1007 and Matt Damon goes, oh, Jesus, again, Ben? And he goes, no, <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> the way that he phrases that. I, was I wasn't with him last that. night. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm quoting the movie, but yeah, that, that scene is, it's Jane Silent Bob Strike Back. It's Did so you good. think you needed to tell us that you were quoting the movie? <laughs> yeah, Did you yeah. feel like you needed to, to specify that you weren't just saying that out loud? The well, way that know, Affleck curses in that scene. It's great. Though, it's you, know, you know what's funny about, about, 
uh, I was, I'm just thinking about back uh, all these situations where I've brought up Goodwill Hunting 2 hunting season to Ben Affleck or Matt Damon. The the time I brought it up to Matt Damon was a movie called Contagion. So, oh. so that's like a serious movie. So I'm like, I'm in the middle of the interview and the interview ends. And I, I go to, I go to Matt Damon. I go, any chance you'll make Goodwill Hunting 2 hunting season? And he starts breaking down laughing. I don't know why I asked it at such serious movies, but for some reason they both enjoyed it. But Kevin, Affleck I, is amazing. I hate to tell you because you quote it so often, but I hate when Affleck does that that voice. When why? It's, it's the so, best part. I know that he's parodying himself, but, but that's when it goes like even too far. Like, it Dude! Just, it's so ridiculous. Matt Damon pulls out a shotgun and shoots a guy, and then Affleck says applesauce. How is that not more good? I crazy know, than- I know. The voice, the voice drives me nuts. All right, so I'll go next, and I will let you guys know that my pick uh, is, your pick. as I mentioned, partially. Oh, uh, well, I'll I'll say this, and I'll let Kevin guess. Partially because of his performance, and partially because of the movie itself. Kevin, my pick is. Reindeer games. Oh, incorrect. That is not, <laughs> that is not correct. Um, oh, it's clearly it is, Phantoms because he's the bomb in Phantoms. He's the bomb oh my in God. Phantoms. Please pick Phantoms just for that line. It is uh, the ultimate edition of Batman versus Superman. Oh, oh. yes. Well but, done. But here's why I'm going to say this and, and I'll make it personal as well, too. Um, I think I, I'm with Kevin in that I think he's the best Batman. Um, hands down. He's the best interpretation of Batman on the big screen. Now you can make an argument that some of the other actors played better versions of, uh, Bruce Wayne. You can make the interpretation that some have had, uh, better villains in their films, but especially in the ultimate edition, the detective version of, of the dark Knight, the suit, the armor, like everything about Batman, Ben Affleck nails. And I hate that he um, got shortchanged in Justice League because I would like to see his version of Justice League. Um, I love, from the very beginning, the interpretation of how the end of Man of Steel and the destruction that was going on in the city is viewed from the point of view uh, of Bruce Wayne and how he would react to the arrival of this alien. Brilliant decision by Snyder's part. I thought that the theatrical cut really jipped out a lot of really significant storylines and i know that i know that the majority of the people who watch batman versus superman only saw the theatrical cut and never bothered to watch the ultimate edition because they thought why would i want to see a longer version of this but it truly is a night and day version of that story it fills Dude, in all these gaps that i don't mean to cut you off but what you yeah. just said i have to mention this yeah. i was interviewing lawrence fishburne one time for john wick i think it was two or three and I walked in the room and i said i love the ultimate edition r-rated cut of batman versus superman he goes what are you talking about? What? His, his guy, his his uh, his agent or publicist came out to ask me about where to find it. Afterwards. Are you kidding me? What? That's how wow. Deep, that's how deeply that film yeah. went away. So I only I only cut you off to no. explain to you that your point is completely valid. So much so the actors probably haven't even seen that. Cut. <laughs> that's crazy because it is yeah. it is it it makes it into into a different movie. Um, which realizing that. Uh, helped me to understand that another version of a movie that Zack Snyder might be responsible for uh, could exist out there and be better. And if anyone's sorry, what are you, what are you referring to or following me on social media, you'll know that my life has been changed by this book that I'm writing. Uh, and 
all of these people who are behind the uh, Snyder Cut release of Justice League. Now, I'm not trying to make it about that, but what it has spent, I've spent the last year focusing very heavily on these three DC movies, and it has allowed me to really, truly appreciate everything that Ben Affleck did uh, in in Batman versus Superman and um, even the theatrical cut. There's things that I pull out of things that he uh, does in the theatrical cut of Justice League that make me realize that he was um, a terrific choice to play. Now, I do think they painted him into a corner in a bit by making him the older version of Bruce Wayne, the grizzled, you know, uh, been in Gotham for 20 years. It's hard to move forward in a franchise when that's your Batman, right? Like there's a reason that Matt Reeves is casting a younger version that he's going with Robert Pattinson. He can grow with him as a character. Snyder needed him to be that version of Batman for BVS, but I don't know how many more movies they could have made realistically. But for a while, we got a great version of uh, Batman, something that was very reminiscent of the Frank Miller. Like there's a reason why there's, iconic shots from Frank Miller uh, DC panels that Snyder recreates, you know, oh, the rain right off the page. Oh. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's a billion gifts that you can put on Twitter that are just tremendous shots from BVS. And so I implore anyone listening to this, if you haven't yet seen the ultimate edition of that film, uh, please go out of your way and spend the time to watch it. It's a longer cut, but it fills in all the things when you were watching Batman vs Superman and you were like, Wait, did I miss something? Did they skip through something? This doesn't make any sense. It's because in the actual version that the director wanted you to see, uh, that they didn't put into theaters, it all of it makes sense. It feels in a lot better. And yes, I do hope that we get to see what Ben did for Zach in the longer version of Justin. Yeah. So. And to Sean's point, uh, the Ultimate Edition truly is the only way to watch that movie. Um, mm. The warehouse scene in our rating is beyond belief. Best Batman ever to grace the screen of cinema. I agree with you. Jakey, close us out. So my favorite movie, I was mentioning this earlier, that uh, Ben Affleck is a part of is Armageddon. I love Armageddon. I love everything about Armageddon. Make fun of me all you want. I think it has some really great cinematography. I think the score is fantastic. It's one of my favorite powerful presidential speeches. And also keep in mind, when you're 10 years old living in the shadow of NASA and Armageddon comes out in theaters, it's the coolest goddamn thing you've ever seen in your entire life. And that what did your father said, do? Oh, and my, and my father was a roughneck. He, he was an oil driller. So I was like, Dad, you could do that too, just like Bruce Willis. Goddamn. <laughs> that being Young said, Jake. Armageddon is not good because of him. Um, I won't say it's good in spite of him, but it's not good because of him. Therefore, I felt like I could not pick it for Ben Affleck blend. So okay. I'm going okay. with Goodwill Hunting. Goodwill Hunting is a movie, and not, not even his performance of Goodwill Hunting. That script, that dialogue is incredible. Um, there, there are moments where I find myself, and I'm curious if you guys do that too. I'll be maybe sitting with, you know, 20 minutes to kill. I'm at work, I'm at home, whatever, on the train. And I'll just think, I want to watch that, like that movie scene. And, I'll, and a yep. movie scene will pop up in my head and I'll pull it up All on YouTube and just sit and All watch it. Yep. And there are so many scenes from Goodwill Hunting, but specifically that scene of uh, Robin Williams' monologue about yeah. how, like, basically you might be the smartest man on the earth, but you don't know what it means to be human. That, Wait, the park bench one? Yeah, the park bench. Okay, so not the, uh, it's not your fault. No, not not it's not your fault. Which is also like, fantastic. Yeah, yeah like, like you... Like you might be able to quote Shakespeare, but you don't know what it's like to be in love. You might be right. able to tell me the history of war, but you don't know what it's like to hold your your friend as he's dying. Like that. That. Yeah, yeah. But but to your point, the fact that there are multiple ones that you yeah, could, that we can yeah. pull out that work and on Affleck's not in them. <laughs> and Affleck's not in. Them. But so but I said still, to Gabe, I said 
I said to Gabe, is is Goodwill Hunting a Ben Affleck movie? And he was like, oh, it totally is. And even still, I was like, Ugh. but he wrote it, dude. He yeah. wrote it. Or maybe he didn't. I don't know. Or maybe, maybe he did. There, there is that famous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, let me rephrase. He got an Oscar for writing. It. He certainly did. Yeah. And and, <laughs> and so I feel like of all of his movies, that I, I I pull that one up and watch and rewatch and watch again the most often. Um, I think everything about it. I mean, it's it it it, it elicited one of Robin Williams' best performances. Um, and 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 yeah, like I, I honestly I I don't remember much about Ben Affleck's performance in it. Um, but I do remember a lot of the lines that are said and they are said by, because Ben Affleck wrote them down. What do you think is the movie that you watch the most on YouTube? The scene, a scene from. Oh, mine's Goodwill Hunting 2 Hunting Season. I watch it all, I watch it all the time. <laughs> you watch that scene all the time? I watch that scene once a week, at oh least. <laughs> it's wow. a masterpiece. It's between, it's, it's either, um, Tom Hanks killing Paul Newman in the rain. Okay. From Road to Pre- I'm glad it's you. And there's a scene, and this is going to seem really random, but I just interviewed the second actor in this scene last week oh. and brought it up to him that I've watched the scene all the time. There's a scene in a movie called Charlie Wilson's War. And it's a scene, I mean, it's not, it's a Tom Hanks movie um, uh, directed, or I forget who, Mike Nichols? Mike Nichols. Directed? Mike Nichols, Mike Nichols. Writ- yeah. written by Aaron Sorkin. Okay. And there's a scene where Philip Seymour Hoffman, Hoffman bursts into the office of John Slattery and yeah. is complaining about why he didn't get a particular assignment and starts accusing him. I didn't get assignment because you're sleeping with uh, so-and-so's wife and you know that I know. And then John Slattery is like, no, it's because you broke my window. And they, it's this most, it's the most beautifully written, just two men tearing each other apart in this office. Yeah, yeah. It starts out fairly civil. And by the end of the conversation, they are screaming at each other in a, in using Aaron Sorkin dialogue. And on the way out, Phil Seymour Hoffman breaks his window again, which he just <laughs> had filled in. I just, I just love watching it because I just love both Philip and John Slattery are just so good in that scene, and the writing's so good. I mean, like if if you're in a theater class and you need a, like a dialogue to do with like with between two people, go find that scene. It's brilliant i told john slattery the other day like dude like I, that that scene is just like you but you know what i'm talking about oh yeah, yeah. no I, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about so yeah. what was his response he liked that one? Oh yeah he yeah he, he kind of he he's like but he gave all credit to sorkin he's like that's all sorkin I if gotta, we're talking if we're talking dialogue my the scene i watch a lot over and over is baldwin's um Glenn Glenn Gary Gary Glenn Ross. Ross. I, I watched that with my dad a, a couple times. b c always be close i did that monologue for a theater class so good mine uh mine is i'm gonna throw this out there and there's an angle to it that i then learned something that something in the monologue that always caught me off guard so it's the courtroom scene for few good men which i i i I watch that i'm probably with you kevin where i watch that once a week and there's so good there's so many times where um there's people who you you do a really good job on something and you feel like you've done a really good job and someone will come back and just sort of nitpick it a little bit. And I always want to just reply with, I would prefer you just said thank you, <laughs> you know, like and move but, on with your day. But there's a there's the line, the way that Nicholson says it, he says, son, we live in a world that has walls and those walls have to be guarded by men with guns. Who's going to do it? You, you, Lieutenant Weinberg, like he turns to Kevin Pollack and spits that out at him. And I always thought, like, what a weird thing. Why did he single out? 
Lieutenant Weinberg in that moment, you know, like he's yelling at Kathy. He's yelling at Tom Cruise's character. And I listened to Kevin Pollack on the Rich Eisen program uh, who does sports. But Rich Eisen loves Hollywood, too, and talks about these things. And Kevin Pollack said that it's like an ad lib. What? That, that Nicholson threw it in. That's and, cool. And he thought it was. He also thought it was very strange that he got called out by Nicholson. But then because he did it the first time, they had to keep it. And they just and so it got worked in as part of the monologue. And uh, so it doesn't explain why it's there necessarily. And Kevin Pollack is Jewish and he's able to make jokes about himself. And he's like, what's wrong with my people? Right. Like we haven't haven't we endured enough that you have to throw me out under the bus. Also, you, Lieutenant Weinberg. Like, is it really that uh, out of the ordinary that I'd be in the military kind of thing? And he does a whole funny bit. But I thought that was fascinating because I think it's a weird sort of uh bit that they threw that Nicholson threw in angrily. Did Kevin, so. did Kevin talk about the alternate take about you can't handle the tooth? Did they talk about that? Like the did. take they put in there for that? I was just curious because I know they were, he was having a toothache that day. Fortunately, I remember did not he, bring yeah, that up. Yeah. Pollock yeah. has had a great, we should do Pollock blend one day too because he's had a Ooh. run of movies yeah. uh, that is totally underrated. And again, find his interview on Rich Eisen because he just went through a list of films that he uh, had appeared in and it sort of have we ever it, done it, the Rob Reiner away. blend? I don't think we have. Talk about an underrated director. When you start listing all the movies he's directed and the fact that he's not considered one of the best directors of all time blows my freaking mind. Well, he's made some really bad movies as well. Yeah, but, but he's made more great, genuinely great with a capital G great movies than a lot of directors that we give credit for. That's probably true. That's probably true. Yeah. All right. Anyway, audience picks for Affleck, uh, Ben Affleck blend, Michael Kamen's. Uh, broke it down two different ways, which I didn't know you could do, but apparently that's the rules. Uh, he said for acting, Chasing Amy, for directing, Gone Baby Gone, and for writing, Goodwill Hunting. Well, I mean, that's cheating. I mean, that's just that's his entire filmography. Uh, D.L. Kiedis and many others went with one that I almost went with, which is Gone Girl. I mean, yeah. you get Affleck working with Fincher. And the reason why he's so perfectly cast for Fincher is because the character has to be an asshole. Like, he yeah. has to be a great A asshole who you hate. And I think Ben Affleck brings a little bit of that to the surface. Uh, Kerry Vanderberg says Batman is his favorite role, but The Town is uh, his favorite film that he directed. And Paul Marsh also says The Town. I think Gone Baby Gone is better than The Town. Yeah, I think Argo is better than The Town. I think Gone Baby Gone is better than Argo. I agree. Gone Baby Gone is the best movie he's made. Yeah. I think Live by Night is unwatchable. It's a film. It is a film. It so exists. much participation this week. I want to thank everybody for playing along on social media for next week. We're going to be choosing our favorite original song made for a motion picture. Ooh! So you're going to reach out to us on Twitter using hashtag song blend. <laughs> I know mine. And Kev- Kevin already knows oh this. Oh my God. And you're going to let us know what your favorite original song written for a movie uh, is going to be. You can also email us at realblend at cinemablend.com. Which That's is a, a place good where one. You can also That's what I'm excited about mine. <laughs> <laughs> a place where you can, oh, I, Kevin's definitely going with, uh, not, I, I won't say it. I won't oh, say, I'm I won't curious. Say I don't know the, what it is. Oh, I know exactly what There's it is. There's no way you know what it is. I may not know the song, but I know what it's from. Give me the, give me the movie. I'll text it to you. No, tell me. I want to know. You Just want me to it. give it away right yeah, now? Yeah, yeah, It's yeah, okay. Yeah. It's from Popstar. That's wrong. Oh, dang. All right. I, thought for I sure do love Popstar, Popstar, but it's not Popstar. You do love Popstar. All right. Uh, also at realblend at cinemablend.com, the email address, you can send us a review. And this week's review comes from M. Hickerson119, who says three friends who love film 
and share that passion. Three friends. Three friends and Gabe. At, he says three friends, parentheses, and their producer, Gabe, who may or may not be real, uh, share their thoughts on film in a timely debate format that is always entertaining and respectful. There are a ton of movie podcasts out there, but there are a few that I find myself but there are few that I find myself wanting to return to as much as this one with interviews and weekly thoughts on the movies hitting theaters and home media, as well as looking back on the long history of cinema. This is an entertaining show that often seems to end far too soon. Well, at that, my friend, we're going to bring this episode to a close, unfortunately. So we will be back next week. Uh, we have an interview that is blanking on who we're talking to. So... Uh, I will wrap it up because I honestly don't forget. I know we have an interview next week. Um, we have a couple of really big ones coming up. Stay tuned to our social media channels where we will uh, keep you guys up to date with when the latest shows are dropping. Be sure to subscribe to the show. Please uh, tell your movie-loving friends that they should come over and listen to the Real Blind Podcast as well, too, because we're always talking about, as this review said, uh, the latest movie news, breaking uh, titles and reviews for things in movies. And I'm just stammering at this point now. So, Kevin, kick us out of here until next week. Dunkirk. Thank you. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.